Section 2 of National Geographic Magazine, Volume 2, Numbers 3 to 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah. The Arctic Cruise of the USS Thetis in the Summer and Autumn of 1889 by Charles H. Stockton. Old Stone Hut on the highest peak at the source of Ikuk Creek, a southerly tributary of the Pitmagia, are the ruins of a hut and smaller outhouse, the like of which has never been met with in northwestern Alaska. Above the grass line, past perpetual beds of snow, up where wild storms sweep away ice, snow, and soil, where only a few gray lichens are to be seen, man, at some former time, has placed a habitation on the crest of the mountain there is a ragged limestone comb twelve feet high cracked and shattered into flakes by the vigor of the polar winters on the south side of this comb sheltered from the prevailing north winds excavations have been made into the rock taking the comb of rock for one side of the house the other side of the semicircle has been built up with flat stones laid up like bricks and masonry but without mortar moss and soil have been in all probability used here instead of mortar but years of fierce winds have blown it out from the crevices the structure is conic in shape after the manner of a greenlander's snow hut this one is about seven feet in diameter facing its entrance is a smaller house of similar construction most likely used as a shelter for game winter storms have crumbled away the roofs of both so that they have fallen in and the fragments of stone are partially covered with soil. The whole bears the impression of age, and no natives have been found who have ever heard of it. From the summit of this peak a splendid view is obtained of the surrounding country, the Arctic Ocean, and herds of passing reindeer. Gold has been found near the Pitmegia, at the head of the same creek and tributary, it being contained in sulphurets of iron which exist in large quantities in that vicinity, there being from $8.50 to $8 worth of gold in a ton. The country is all but impassable, however, and this, together with the shortness of the season, would prevent any mining with profit. Our party returned from the Pitmegia with a few ptarmigan and ducks, and upon our arrival, the ship was at once gotten under way, and we stood to the northward for Point Barrow. Drift ice was constantly passed, but fortunately so scattered as not to form any obstruction to free navigation. On the next day we enjoyed a superb Arctic summer's day, and began to fall in with the whaling fleet on the way north to Point Barrow. Fifteen vessels were sighted and passed, most of them vessels under sail. Rounding the dangerous Blossom Shoals and the icy cape of Captain Hook, we stood to the northeast, finding generally clear water with scattered drift ice upon the floes we found great quantities of walrus in some cases stretched at full length sound asleep one huge fellow remained so undisturbed at our approach that he was supposed to be dead but a well-aimed irish potato aroused him so rudely that he quickly slid off the floe and disappeared beneath the water pushing on we passed st belcher at nine thirty in the morning in the fog and rain, and came to heavy masses of ice, over which a low fog had settled. 
With some delay and difficulty we worked out of both the fog and the ice, and at five o'clock in the morning sighted four vessels (steamers) at anchor off the village of Utkavi at Cape Smith, eight miles from Point Barrow, and the site of Captain Ray's Signal Service meteorologic station of some years ago, the house that sheltered the party being still standing. One of the steamers proved to be our old friend, the Bear, which had passed to the northward when we had returned southward from the Arctic with the survivors of the Little Ohio. The other vessels were made out to be steam whalers, and at seven o'clock we anchored near them off the site determined upon for the house of refuge. Finding the bear had commenced to discharge her stores and materials, all of our facilities were at once used in tending her assistance. Our steam launch Achilles, now as of yore the child of the Thetis, being busily at work towing boats to and fro, while our men and mechanics, with officers, were busily engaged in aiding the construction of the house of refuge. Our arrival at Cape Smith and vicinity of Point Barrow was on the 29th of July, the bear having arrived on the 27th, the Saturday previous. While we were lying at anchor engaged in the erection of the house of refuge, the rest of the whaling fleet, both sail and steam, gradually arrived and came to anchor off the coast, reaching from Cape Smith to Point Barrow. After a short stay, the steamers went on to the eastward of Point Barrow, following along the ice pack, which was in sight from Point Barrow, until they reached the heavier ice off Point Tangent. When the last of the whaling vessels had arrived, a fleet of 47 vessels carrying the American flag had assembled within sight of the most northerly point of the United States, composed of steamers, barks, brigantines, and schooners. These vessels, manned by about 1,200 men, I venture to say, formed the largest assemblage of vessels and men under the American flag to be found anywhere during that year. I cannot speak too highly of the skill, seamanship, courage, and endurance of the whaling masters. They are a fine body of American seamen. The scene on shore was one of abnormal activity for this region. The erection of the House of Refuge, the hasty landing and transportation of stores, in which the whalers assisted, the movements of the Eskimos about their village, which was dotted with the white summer tents of the residents, and the visiting inland Eskimos, and the clustering and trading about the whaling company station, Ray's old station, gave a life and movement which was as short-lived as the season. Fortunately, the weather proved most favorable, and the heavy ice kept offshore while the stores were landed. The wind then freshened, but communication could still be kept up, and the work of erection went on. The site of the house of refuge is within a few hundred yards of Ray's old house and near the village, and its keeper, Captain Borden, an old New Bedford whaler, was busy in putting his house in order before the autumn should come on. During our stay at this place, we were enabled to make a hydrographic survey of the anchorage which demonstrated that the contour of the bottom is constantly changed by the ploughing and planing done by the heavy ice grounded and driven up by the pressure of the mighty ice pack under the influence of northerly winds and gales and here let me say a word about the ice of this part of the arctic ocean the ice in summer consists of floes and fields of various sizes which are cemented together in winter 
by the young or newly frozen ice. No icebergs exist in this part of the Arctic, and there are no glaciers near the sea coast to form them. The shore along the entire Arctic coast of Alaska shows evidence of former glacial action, but the only glaciers to be found are in the southeastern part of the territory. The Arctic pack, which never melts, consists of hard blue ice made up of fields and flows of comparatively level ice, which are surrounded and interspersed with hummocks varying from 10 to 40 feet in height. These hummocks are formed by the broken and telescoped ice resulting from the collision and grinding together of heavy ice flows, the hummocks being often rounded and smoothed in outline by heavy falls of snow. In the spring, under the influence of the prevailing southerly winds and northerly currents, the ice packs break off from the shore and move to the north, the position of the southern edge varying in latitude with the season and the winds. The shore ice, which remains fast to the coastline after the pack moves off, gradually breaks up as the season advances, and, becoming scattered, is taken to the northeastward from the vicinity of Point Barrow, and northwestward from the vicinity of Herald Island and Wrangell Land. Sometimes a long line of heavy floe ice from the pack grounds in the shallow water near the shore during northerly winds, pressed from behind by the force and weight of the entire northern pack. It is gradually forced up, plowing its way through the bottom, at the same time rising gradually along the ascent of the bottom toward the land. This effect of this solid wall of cold and relentless blue ice slowly rising and advancing upon those imprisoned between the ice and the shore is one of the most sublime and terrible things that can be experienced the northern current running north through bering straits forks a short distance to the north one branch going through kotzebue sound and thence along the mainland by cape seppings point hope and icy cape to point barrow at which point it goes off to the unknown northeast the other branch to the northwestward along the siberian coast and thence to the northward toward herald island the whalers burned by the confederate vessel shenandoah near bering strait were found in the vicinity of herald island the only portion of the whalers at the time actively cruising had gone to the eastward of point barrow on that day a seaman named tuckfield returned from the mackenzie in a whaleboat and reported the ice conditions unusually favorable as far east as mackenzie bay in the vicinity of which he had wintered he was a seaman belonging to the whaling station and had been reported to me by a missionary i met at st michael's as having visited his station at rampart house upon the porcupine river a branch of the yukon on the 8th of August, the House of Refuge was virtually finished, and as my orders were to devote my time to the whaling fleet after the completion of this structure, I concluded to cruise after and with the vessel to the eastward of Point Barrow, leaving the bear to remain with the vessels lying at anchor off Cape Smith and Point Barrow. As Tuckfield wanted to go east with his Eskimo guide, I took him and his whaleboat and whaling outfit on board leaving Cape Smith on the evening of the 8th. The ice inside at the time was somewhat scattered, but plentiful, and entering it about nine o'clock, we slowly stood on a course parallel to the land. We were occupied in working through this ice all night and all of the next day. It was not the pack ice, but shore ice broken off from the vicinity of Point Tangent, 
Smith Bay, and Harrison Bay. At times we found it so closely packed together by current and wind that we had to turn back and work our way closer inshore. Three vessels under sail were sighted during this time off Tangent Point, and by this time we had also demonstrated the uselessness of little Joe Tuckfield as an ice pilot or prophet. The winds were very light, and we had now gotten out of the strong northeast current running off Point Barrow. On the night of the ninth, we passed off the north of the Colville River, the water offshore becoming very muddy. The first important error found in the charts and maps of this region was found here by the observation of the non-existence of the Pelly Mountains. This observation was confirmed upon our return by the concurrent testimony of the whaling masters who had cruised here and the natives who had hunted in the neighborhood. The mountains certainly do not exist where placed by the charts, and I judge that some small hummocks near the beach were mistaken for a far-off range of mountains when Dease and Simpson first explored this coast in 1837. Early on the morning of the 10th of August, we sighted the first steam whaler, and as we steamed toward her, we skirted along some long, low islands parallel to the coastline and stretching from the return reef of sir john franklin to the mouth of the colville river the islands one being about three miles long are not shown upon the charts and not having any known names were designated as the thetis islands the steam whaler was found to be the baldina commanded by captain everett smith one of the most intelligent of the whalemen of the arctic he was anchored off return reef which he was enabled definitely to locate by the traditions of the natives. It was at this point that Sir John Franklin, in one of his earliest boat journeys, was obliged to turn back while endeavoring to explore the coast from Mackenzie Bay to Point Barrow. After a long interview with Captain Smith, from which I gathered much information as to the ice conditions and the probable positions of the steam whalers to the eastward, he returned on board of his ship, and the good ship Thetis, once more turned her head to the eastward. Soon afterwards, another steam whaler was sighted, made fast by ice anchors to an ice floe. We did not stop, but, exchanging colors, proceeded on our way. The ice seemed to be getting thicker, and shortly afterwards a third whaler was sighted, at anchor off a small low island, with apparently heavy ice ahead. As the weather seemed uncertain, I determined to anchor for the night in the vicinity of the island. The steamer was found to be the whaler Beluga, commanded by Captain Brooks, and the island, though nameless, was marked by a wooden cross, from which fact it was called Cross Island. Captain Brooks stated that he had been struggling with the ice to the eastward of Cross Island the day before, in company with some other steam whalers who had left him and gone to the eastward, so he had turned back and anchored off Cross Island. I sounded out the vicinity of the island, finding shoal water to the southward, too shoal for the Thetis to anchor in, and so I remained upon the west side. The wind shifting, our position, became insecure on account of the masses of ice drifting toward us. The whaler left the anchorage, stood out into the heavy ice, and made fast to a high hummocky floe. Seeing no good place nearby, I held on with the chain on the steam windlass ready to leave in a moment. Heavy ice coming down and grounding close by on both sides, we left and got out the ice anchors to a heavy flow, 
where we rode out the gale until early in the morning, when we were obliged to move on, as the ice packed about our rudder. After moving again and again, the wind fell away, the day cleared up, and the ice began to scatter and disappear about the island, the leads to the eastward looking more promising. The next day, at five in the morning, in company with our whaling friend, we left the vicinity of Cross Island, and, entering the ice, stood toward the northeast. The ice floes grew heavier and larger as we progressed, and the canal-like leads more confused, until at ten o'clock the lead stopped, and we both made fast to a very large, long, hummocky floe, at least ten miles in length, several miles in breadth, and aground in eighty feet of water. The day was mild and clear, and after both of the ice anchors had been secured and the rope ladders lowered over the bows, a number of the officers and men went on the ice, the men playing football and snowballing, while the officers posed for their photographs. This is the time that we were reported by a steam whaler that we had passed as being in a position of extreme danger, and the news was taken to the outside world. About four o'clock in the afternoon, we started ahead with the beluga. The Thetis, now taking the lead, rammed her way through some pack ice, and reached another lead going inshore, the beluga following very slowly after us. We continued forcing our way until we got into clear water by Lion Reef. At midnight we made fast to a small floe, and after an anxious night, caused by ice floes setting against our stern and rudder, we proceeded, followed at a long distance by the beluga which joined us in the afternoon at Camden Bay, and we anchored there for the night. We found that the beluga, in attempting to follow us, had gotten on an ice foot, or protruding spur, and bent her propeller blades, and had finally to seek another lead out, to the westward of where we had rammed through. As we ran off from Lion Reef to Camden Bay, we sighted the beautiful ranges of mountains close to the coast, known as the Franklin and Romanzoff Mountains, making an agreeable change in the topography of the shore, which had been low and monotonously flat since leaving Point Hope and the vicinity of Cape Lisburn. We found here that the shoreline was put upon the charts far too north, as our position near Flaxman Island, on the west side of Camden Bay, was well inland of the coastline and reefs, Camden Bay was the last wintering place of Collinson in the Enterprise upon his return from his search for Sir John Franklin, and here we fell in with the track of this distinguished navigator, whose cruise is so little known, and whose efforts have been so much eclipsed by his fellow voyager, McClure, who has the distinction given him of being the actual discoverer of the Northwest Passage, and who was, indeed, with his little body of men, in 1850 to 1854, the first as well as the last to pass from the Pacific to the Atlantic, north of the American continent. Upon a long point named Collison Point, and upon the neighboring island known as Barter Island, are to be found, during the summer, encampments and rendezvous of Eskimos, who meet there for purposes of trade, similar to the same rendezvous in Kotzebue Sound. Here the Alaskan and the Mackenzie River Eskimos meet, also the Lucia or Pratt River Indians, who are nomads, and come from the vicinity of the Porcupine and Pratt Rivers, and whose winter rendezvous and habitation is at the Rampart House, a Hudson Bay Company station, and Church of England mission upon the Porcupine. 
They are mostly professing Christians and are related to the Athabascans, or Rock Mountain Indians, in family. There are no permanent settlements here or elsewhere between the vicinity of Herschel Island and Point Barrow. The country is sterile, affording but little upon which to live, the sea also having little or no animal life in its waters. The Eskimos give to this part of the Arctic Ocean a native name which signifies the sea where there is always ice. Early the next morning, August 14th, at five o'clock, we pushed on in company with the Beluga, standing out of Camden Bay and delaying a short time off Barter Island to communicate with the natives. At noon, while off Manning Point, the smoke of several steamers was seen to the eastward, and when they had come up we found all but two of the steam whalers that had gone east. They were led by the steamer William Lewis, commanded by Captain Albert Sherman, probably the boldest and most active of the Arctic whalers. They were all in the cabin of the Thetis in a short time, and I found that they had reached Mackenzie Bay and the vicinity of the Mackenzie River. The two missing ones, the Orea and Thrasher, had last been seen in the vicinity of Herschel Island. The ice conditions were reported to be better than those we had passed through. After reflection, I considered it my duty, as it was my desire, to go on to the eastward to ascertain the cause of the detention of the two missing whalers, and, as time was precious, I determined to run on day and night. By this time, night had assumed the conditions of twilight, and the stars had begun to appear in the skies. The threatening appearance of the weather detained us at first, but at nine o'clock in the evening we got under way, and with her colors hoisted, the good ship started again on her easterly course, followed in about half an hour by our old friend and companion, the Beluga. Before leaving, we had hoisted out the whaleboat with Joe and native friends, who had been joined at this point by the women of the family. Joe was uncertain about his movements here, and as he expected to secure stores from some of the whalers, I left him in their company. We found the shore bolder as we progressed, and the mountains nearer the coast. As a result, the ice generally sets directly and in heavy masses on the shore without grounding, and this point has never been passed before by the whalers. But, fortunately, a wide lane was open. The side of the mountains, standing in their silent and gloomy grandeur, was particularly impressive, and our inability to make a closer examination and exploration is to be regretted. So far as I can ascertain, no white man has ever penetrated these mountainous regions, which are known upon the maps in turn under the varying names of the Romanzoth, British, Buckland, and Richardson Mountains, being so named by Sir John Franklin during his boat journey along the coast. The British mountains are at the extreme northeastern corner of our territory of Alaska, reaching also across the boundary line into British America. We passed Demarcation Point, where our boundary line reaches the Arctic Ocean, early upon the morning of the 15th of August, and commenced again our cruising in British waters. The character of the shore remained the same, the mountains, however, showing little traces of snow, testifying in this way both to the extreme mildness of the winter and our approach to the valley of the Mackenzie. A few Eskimo huts were seen as we came up to the shoal ground developed by our lead in the vicinity of the mouth of the Malcolm River. The lead was constantly going while we were in these waters, and the ship was steered by it as much as by our compass. In fact, the three L's, latitude, lead, lookout, 
are the great necessities for navigation in these unknown regions, as the three R's are supposed to be in elementary schooling. At eleven o'clock in the morning, Herschel Island was sighted, this large island forming the western boundary of Mackenzie Bay, or, as the ancient explorers often termed it, Mackenzie Sea. At one-thirty in the afternoon, we anchored off the southwest end of the island inside some grounded ice and off a long, gravelly spit, thickly covered with heavy driftwood from the Mackenzie River. The island is about five hundred feet in height and has a rounded outline, sloping gradually down from the center upon all sides. It shows the appearance of former glacial action and appears to be an ancient moraine covered with a black vegetable mold. The vegetation was confined to grasses and small arctic flowers, diminutive in size, delicate in color, and evidently short-lived. Soon after we anchored, a party was sent on shore to erect a sign to mark our visit. It consisted of a board with the name of the ship and the date of the visit in brass letters. Under the staff supporting it, there are placed in a glass bottle the names of the officers and men of the ship. The beluga joined us soon after our arrival, and when the party from shore had returned, we got under way to continue our look for the two whalers. Captain Brooks came on board the Thetis and shared my perch and lookout in the foretop while his ship followed in charge of his mate. As we reached the bluffs at the north end of the island, we saw a noble expanse of open water stretching to the northward as far as the eye could reach. The ice was still heavy to the westward and northwestward, but to the north, beyond the light, scattering ice through which we were going, was clear sea, the waves leaping in the beautiful Arctic sunshine. We looked with eagerness to the sea, which stretched, apparently, to the North Pole, and then headed to the southward into Mackenzie Bay. After three hours steaming from our first anchorage, we reached the southeast side of the island, and found the two missing whalers lying quietly at anchor, Captain Brooks giving a hearty and relieved cry of, Sail ho! when the vessels were seen, and we were all pleased to see them safe and secure. We came to anchor close by them, and the two captains were soon on board. They reported that they had remained behind to watch for the return of whales from the north eastward, but, so far, without any success. They had determined to remain until September, and contemplated the possibility of wintering at this place. Soon after we anchored, Eskimos who lived at the mouth of the Mackenzie came on board, and they looked at the ship with the greatest surprise and interest. They had not seen vessels before this summer, though the traditions concerning the enterprise and investigator under Collinson and McClure still survived. End of section two. Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah.